Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We start a new series called For the Life of the World, Christianity and Human Flourishing. And really where this series comes from is this idea, this question maybe, is Christianity a good thing for the world? I mean, if you're a believer, like you love Jesus, there's there's some part of you that knows that, right? Like this is a good thing for the world. People of faith, the Christian faith, what Jesus has done for us. And yet out there in the culture, there's so much right now that's critical of evangelicalism. There's so much out there that's questioning the teaching of the Bible and asking if the teaching of the Bible is a good thing for society. There's so much out there where we're drumming up the history of the church and the church's failures. And so a lot of people believe that Christianity isn't actually something that brings life to the world, that it's actually a bad thing for society. Uh, But what we want to do over the coming weeks is show you how Christianity offers unique resources uh, to people that nothing else offers. What we want to do over the coming weeks is show you the contribution that Christianity makes for the life of the world. And over the coming weeks, we're going to show you how Christianity offers goodness and truth and hope and beauty for the life of the world. Today, we're going to be looking at beauty. Now, beauty is is interesting as we think about it. Uh, You know, one phrase is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You've heard that before. But often I find that there's so much that is beautiful that we miss unless we're aware of the backdrop behind the beauty. In in other words, when when something uh, terrible or awful or ugly happens, it often sharpens our vision to those things which are good and beautiful. Um, You know, when, when I take a morning walk and it's dark outside, I don't really see anything until the sun comes up and then the palm trees are silhouetted. And then maybe right as I'm walking down the street, a beam of light comes and hits a flower in someone's front yard. And because it's been dark out, the backdrop has been this darkness, all of a sudden I see the beauty of that one flower, right? And the flower was there the whole time. Uh, Yet at the same time, now because the light shines on it, I see the beauty of that flower against the backdrop. That's kind of what our passage is like today. Our, Our passage shows something beautiful, but you have to understand the backdrop. The backdrop in this passage in Isaiah 61 and 62 is that Israel has broken their relationship with God. God had made an agreement with them as he saved them out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land and he said, listen, you will obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people and I will love you, but you must be faithful to me. You must not sacrifice anything to idols. You must not sacrifice your children to Molech. You must be faithful to me. And Israel wasn't. And so God allowed them to be taken into captivity. God allowed a foreign land to come into Jerusalem, the holy city of God, and capture his people and take them into exile and destroy the city because of their rebellion. But it's against the backdrop of that darkness that we see the beauty of what God is doing. So we're going to read Isaiah 61 and half of 62, which is a little bit longer than we normally read. But my hope is that you'll just kind of let it wash over you. You'll let the images 
stir up a longing in you. You'll capture some of its beauty. So let's read God's word, starting with Isaiah 61. I'm reading the ESV this morning, and it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, that's Jerusalem, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. Chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord in a royal diadem in the hand of your God, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, in your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young woman marries a young, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Word of God. The backdrop matters 
when it comes to beauty. I have here a tangerine, which is an orange, and they stick out because of their color. But you might not call it beautiful, just me holding it up here. But if I told you about one particular orange, and I told you about the backdrop of an orange, of that particular orange, you might be more prone to say that an orange is beautiful. I heard a story on my favorite podcast. My favorite podcast is this one where um, they tell stories. And I heard a story about an orange. And what made this orange beautiful was that the orange was found in Auschwitz, the Jewish Holocaust camp in World War II. And, and the interesting thing about the description of Auschwitz was that everything was white or gray or black. Like there was no color. The guards in Auschwitz, the Nazi guards, wore black. And it was winter, and so the sky was always kind of gray. And the Jewish people that were in prison there, they had these gray uniforms, and they didn't get much sun, so they were white, and there was just no color. But then one particular person in that camp was walking through the yard one day. He was looking for some gray newspaper to stuff in his shoes that might keep him warm during the winter. And then as he looked out, he saw it there in, in the camp, just an orange sitting there in the concentration camp. No one saw it but him. And he went over to it. He almost couldn't believe it. And as he held it up, he thought, wow, this is beautiful. He immediately took it back to his bunk room and he hid it so that no one would find it. And then that night when everyone lay asleep, he took it out of its hiding place and he just held it and he looked at it as everyone else slept. And he scratched it and smelled the citrus smell. He couldn't believe it. He had an orange. And he decided that night that he was going to keep it hidden until there was a particularly bad day in Auschwitz. And he didn't have to wait long. For several days later, many of his friends were taken into the shower rooms and did not come back. And it was at that moment he decided that he needed to show this orange to his friends. And so after they went back to the barracks, after they went back to their bunk room, they all sat in a circle and he pulled out the orange and no one said a word. They just looked at it. They hadn't eaten anything like this in years. They hadn't seen anything like this in months. But he pulled out the orange and he looked at it and everyone's eyes were captured by it. And he passed the orange around one person to the next. And each person sniffed it and felt it. You know, that kind of sticky feeling when you rub an orange. And after everyone had gazed on the beauty of this orange, they peeled it open and each person took a square and put that orange in their mouth. What was captivating about the orange? It, it wasn't the, the chemical makeup. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily anything about the vitamins that they would get. It was the fact that they had seen and engaged and tasted and smelled this orange against the backdrop of everything that they were going through in Auschwitz. I find beauty is like that. There is something that can be beautiful, but we might miss out on it until we see the backdrop. Today, I want to invite you um, to engage with the beauty of our God and what he is doing in us. 
to stand around and let's share this together and just let his beauty capture you afresh. That's really what this passage is getting at. The, the passage in many ways is like an orange against the backdrop of darks and gray and brokenness. The backdrop of our passage is human brokenness and ruin. If we read in our passage that there's people who are impoverished, there's people who are brokenhearted, there's people who are in captivity in Babylon, there's people who are bound in prison, who are overcome by sadness and mourning, who sit in ashes, there are people who are trapped in ruin. And it's against that real backdrop that our passage becomes beautiful. For it speaks of someone who will come to those people surrounded by bad news and literally preach into existence beauty. The passage says that a restorer is coming who will preach good news to the poor and he will bind up broken hearts and he will proclaim liberty to the captives. He will give sight to the blind and he will set free those who are in prison. Verse 3 in chapter 61 says, He will grant those who mourn in Zion and give them what? A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified the first beautiful thing we see that God is doing in this passage is the beauty of restoration against the backdrop of ruin. The, the beauty of restoration by God against the backdrop of human ruin and rebellion. Now, this passage was originally supposed to be about uh, the, the exiles, the people who had been captured in Babylon, returning to their promised land and being restored and seeing the city restored and having their mourning and sin restored and forgiven. But it's interesting that someone in particularly picks up on this passage as his mission statement. In Luke 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he announces himself in the beginning of his ministry by reading this passage and saying it's about himself. That he is the one who will ultimately restore against the backdrop of human ruin. And we know that that's true. Jesus is the one who steps in and proclaims good news to the poor, who gives sight to the blind, who sets captives free. Millions of lives have been restored by Jesus Christ. Millions of lives have been made new against the backdrop of our own human ruin. Jesus has stepped in and restored broken lives even when the ruin is our own fault. Jesus has healed many people from drug addiction. Jesus has set many people free from their pride. Jesus has released people from the idolatry of greed and sexual destruction and religiosity. And when you see that freedom in people's lives, when you see that restoration happening, you can't help but see the beauty 
the beauty of an orange against the backdrop of Auschwitz, the beauty of a restorer against the backdrop of human ruin. See, one of the unique resources that Christianity provides to the world is restoration from real human ruin. Church isn't just about like, let's pretend we're all okay. What we are engaging here is a faith that believes that Jesus Christ came into the world in the midst of sin and destruction and ruin, and that could not overpower his power. He stepped in and forgave people and healed people and set people free so that they could be restored from real ruin. Now, I know a lot of times Christians have bad reputations. Like sometimes Christians are just ornery, right? We look at their lives, we look at our lives and we go, you know, Jesus has restored me and that's beautiful. And yet at the same time, some of us don't like to be around other Christians. And we go, you know, I look at Christians and sometimes they're just not that beautiful, right? Come on, let's be honest, right? Uh, Tim Keller says something interesting about Christians and it might offend you a little bit. But he, but he says, you know, Christians are often the worst people in society. Like if you're a Christian, you needed some big help. You needed some big restoration. You needed some big help from the midst of ruin. And oftentimes as Christians, we have so much further to go. Like I look around at other people and I'm like, God has really changed me over the past 20 years. But I look at some other people, I'm like, they are a lot better than I am. And if, it was, if I was left to myself, I would go back to the ruin. I say all that to say is it's beautiful what God is doing in our lives, and we have a long way to go. So are, are you in a place where you're just coming to church to come to church, or are you someone who needs restoration from ruin? Maybe ruin that you've brought onto your own life. If so, see the beauty of what Jesus does. Jesus restores people from their own ruin. But he doesn't just do that and then put us on the sideline. He involves us in the lives of other people, stepping in to restore them. In chapter 61, verse 4, it says of these people who have been set free, who have been given sight, who have been uh, given liberty, that they shall build up the ancient, ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Ray Ortland says that the mourners, the sad people, the helpless people of verse 4 become the repair experts, sorry, in verse 3, become the repair experts in verse 4. Isaiah uses the language of rebuilding because the Jewish people literally rebuilt the ruins of Jerusalem after the exile. In other words, the second place we see beauty in this passage is that people who have been restored from ruin then become part of the restoration project. The beauty is that we have a role in the restoration of others, in the restoration of others from ruin. People who have been restored by the good news of Jesus become people who step into the ruin with the good news of Jesus. We have seen what Jesus is doing in our lives and the beauty that he is producing. And we know that no one is beyond hope. That's one of the reasons why we've been going to the, to the detention center. That's one of the reasons why we've been going into the verb kind 
And it's interesting, when you go, this, this has happened to almost everyone, the first time you go, you will be a little intimidated. I ha- everyone that I've seen has, has been intimidated when they've walked into that room and they've been around teenage boys who have committed crimes and you're kind of locked in there with them and you're like, whoa, I'm intimidated. Uh, but as, as you get to know them, you realize that these are just human beings who need res- restoration. And as begin, you begin to think about what Jesus has done in your life, I found for myself a boldness has really come because I am confident that what Jesus has done in me, he can do in them too. I was talking to a boy this week at the detention center, and you know, sometimes they share what's going on with them. Sometimes they share why they're there. And this boy said that he had gotten busted um, carrying a gun around. And I was like, oh man, okay. Um, Let's, let's talk about that. And we began to just talk about why he was carrying a gun and what he felt he needed that for. And then we began to talk about how in Christ, that passage that we just read of Psalm 23, like you can, you can rely on Jesus in the darkest valleys. You don't have to break the law. You can rely on Jesus. And it was funny, as we began to talk more and more and more, he began to share with me some of his hopes and dreams. And it, it was really strange because here's this kid who, He'd gotten busted by the cops for a gun. And I, and I was like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I think I want to do like SWAT. I was like, you want to be on the SWAT team? Like, you want to be a cop? And he's like, yeah, I think I want to be on SWAT. I was like, why do you want to be on SWAT? And he's like, well, man, when SWAT team rolls up and like, you know, they kick the door open on people, man, everyone's scared. And I was like, okay, well, we'll talk about your motivations down the road. But like, that's a good thing that you want to be involved in something positive in the community. But in that moment, I began to see, you know, here's, here's an opportunity for me to walk with someone and see their restoration. Like he has another path he can choose. And I'm empowered to do that because me, myself, I have been restored as well. I'm not better. I'm not more put together. I just have a savior who's restored me. The beauty of having a role in restoration, especially right now as our culture fractures and divides and gets more and more angry at each other. I I think what we have gotten lost in is our role, that our role is in restoring people, not retaliation. You know, if I turn on the news and I watch a certain network or a certain program, all of a sudden I get, I start getting really mad at like other people and other political parties. But then if I watch other news and other political parties, all of a sudden I realize I start getting mad at these other people. And the best really our culture can do right now is calling out the wrongs and hypocrisies of someone else. I've never gotten on those political networks and, and someone said, you know what? Our party, our people, our group, we could really do a better job. Here's where we failed. Here's where we need restoration. No one says that. When it comes to politics, it's always about how the other person is wrong. And you and I get caught up in that narrative too much. The narrative that we're supposed to get caught up in is that we, as the ones who have been restored, now can step into the ruin of other people's lives and help restore them because that's what Jesus did to us. And that's beautiful. Ray Ortland goes on to say that we have the devastations of many generations. That's what sin does. Sin creates victims who feel entitled to retaliate, which creates more sin 
and more victims who feel entitled to retaliate, which creates more sin and more victims. Isn't it interesting that in many wars of history, no one ever stands up and says, hey, everybody, I'm firing the first shot. I'm picking this fight. This war is all my fault. No one ever says that. Every war is a counterstrike. All shots are return fire, redressing a wrong. There are just wars, but where grievances are concerned, every one of us has a long memory and a short fuse. Every person, every home, every culture has ancient ruins creating more ruins, and who has ever stopped them? Ortland concludes by saying, ever since Adam fell, sin has been spreading a culture of death. We'll never understand ourselves and our surrounding without that background. This world is not normal. We are not normal. Everything is broken. So here's a radical proposal. We need a savior. And the only person in the history of the human race who qualifies is Jesus Christ. He came to recreate for us a culture of life. Isaiah's point in verse four is that gospel-liberated people themselves become a creative force for restoration. That's our mission. The mission of Jesus and his church will be rebuilding ruins when every noble human salvation is falling into ruins. And one of the unique resources that Christianity offers for the life of the world is humble, confident people. We're humble because we know that our lives would be in ruin without Jesus Christ. And yet we are confident because we know that he has restored us and is continuing to restore us. And therefore, our focus doesn't have to be on the ruin that others have created, but rather the restoration that Jesus can bring in their lives. In fact, we expect others to be in ruin because we ourselves have been in ruin. And when we understand that, there is such a beautiful, humble confidence that comes over the people of God that springs out of the last thing, the beauty of a restored relationship with God. In in chapter 61, verse 2, this person preaching, this preacher says that they're here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, when Jesus quotes this passage in Luke 2, He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but then he doesn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, he doesn't proclaim God's wrath. And the reason he withholds that when he announces himself using this passage is because the wrath of God is being withheld and he is going to take it on himself. Part of his mission is to restore what's broken and restore the broken relationship that we have with God by dying for your and my sins, by taking the wrath of God on himself so that you and I could be forgiven and justified and given new life through the good news. And then when that happens, when our relationship with God is changed, our identity before him changes. In verse 61.6, it says, you shall be called priests or representatives of the Lord. Then listen to this in 62, two through four. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of what? Beauty. Me, you, a crown of beauty in the hands of the Lord. You shall be called 
My delight is in her. Now, that's not saying that our delight is in our spouses. It's saying that we, as the bride of God, as the bride of Christ, our name is God's delight is in us. Wow! That's our name before God. That is beautiful. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What do we do with that? The God of the universe looks on our human ruin. He sends a restorer to restore us and he gives us a new name and says, I rejoice over you. Do you see the unique resources of beauty that Christianity offers for the life of the world? So many people are trying to make themselves beautiful and hey, beauty's a great thing. Physical beauty's amazing. So many of us, though, are trying to, to prove our worth and, and prove that we are valuable and that we can do something in the world. And doing something in the world is amazing. Yet what's so unique about Christianity is what God will do with us in his hand, what God will do with us and through us so that we will be called his crown of beauty. We will be the ones that he delights in. And then we respond. What do you do when you see something beautiful? <laughs> well, Chad and Ellie were celebrating their anniversary. I'm sure Chad remembers when he opened the door and the door was open and Ellie walked towards him and he was stunned at his future wife's beauty. I'm sure he wanted to sing, right? That's what we're called to in light of what God's doing in us, in light of the beauty that God shows in Verse 61, 10, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Friends, the restoration that we have isn't a human restoration. The relationship we have isn't a human relationship. It is a beautiful relationship that does not make any sense. That God, the God of the universe, the God who has the right to judge us, has, has pushed his wrath onto his son. And that now in his son, we have the identity of God's representatives, of God's beautiful loved one, of the one that he delights in. What would happen? if your hearts began to be captured by that beauty. Not you having to make yourself beautiful to God, but rather the beauty of what God is doing in us in his church. Friends, Christianity offers something so unique. It, it's so different. Uh, unbelievable resources for beauty in the world. We just have to have the eyes to see it. We have to the eyes to admit how broken the backdrop really is. And when we begin to see the, the brokenness of the backdrop, the beauty of the gospel begins to come to life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.